Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, my name is Gary. I've been a uh, pastor here for, for a while. Uh, I'd tell you how long, otherwise it makes me feel old, but 21 years, uh, and it's great to be with you. Uh, yeah, praise God for that, right? Thank you, Lord. Um, open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're studying that book. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. I'd like everyone to have one and access one. Uh, Nehemiah, if you don't know where that is, turn to Psalms. It's in the middle of your Bible. Turn left. And a couple books, you'll find Nehemiah, page 476 in our Pew Bibles. And I have a question for you as we start. Who likes to wait? (laughs) Who enjoys waiting? Uh, When you get on the Bayshore Freeway and you look at your Google map and you just see a large red line ahead of you, how many of you go, yes, that's what I want? Yesterday, I was on, on the phone with AT&T customer service, and right when I got to the prompt I needed to get to, they said, our average wait time is three minutes. I'm like, oh, I could do that. 18 minutes later, I hung up, because I don't like to wait. Uh, as we think of dislocated heart, though, I think of uh, our journey with our adoption with uh, Juela. We just celebrated five years of having our youngest daughter with us. And by far, that was the most uh, gut-wrenching, spiritually rich experience of our lives next to coming to Christ. We live with this dislocated heart uh, for this girl in the Congo. And we did our part to plan, to pray, to weep, to work the process but so much depended on factors outside of ourselves, namely the Congolese government and the United States State Department. Uh, And for nine gut-wrenching months, we were praying, we were planning, we were filling out forms, we were fingerprinting, interviewing, we had roadblocks, and we had no guarantee of where this process would end. We didn't know if this would be a true birth after nine months or if this would break down. There were no guarantees. No one had been adopted from this region of the Congo ever before we were pioneering in that sense. I think there's a reason in hindsight that God gave us nine months to wait for Jojo. He was preparing her for us, but he was preparing us for her as well. Scripture is replete with spiritual gestation periods. God gives us these things to mold us, to grow us. Can you think of greats in the Bible who had to wait? Joseph comes to mind in the Old Testament, 13 years between the dream and the reality, 13 years. I only had nine months, 13 years. Abraham, 25 years between the promise of God and a boy. Moses, 40 years. But more importantly, and and by far the most extreme waiting in the Bible is Jesus. Think about this, God living outside of time, always in the present, all of time is the present for Jesus, and then he steps into time and has to wait 30 years. When he's never been bound by time, he has to take it one day at a time for his public ministry, and then three more years. And what happened in those 30 years? We get a window of that in Luke chapter 2. Look at this verse. He grew. 
as a human being. This is why God has us wait, to grow us. He grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew in favor with God and with man. Waiting is what God does best. Does God have you waiting? We're in good company. Many in this room are waiting. We're sitting in what we learned yesterday, last week was a dislocated heart. I call it the valley of perhaps. Do you know that valley? Between the twin peaks of promise and fulfillment is the valley of perhaps. God is not living in the perhaps, but we are. Because we see through a glass dimly. And all we have to hold on to is the promise and we step out in obedience. That's exactly where we find Nehemiah in chapter 2. Just by way of review, he's 800 miles from Jerusalem. He's lived in exile his whole life. He's never known Jerusalem. He's lived in opulence uh, for most of his life as a cupbearer, not most, but the last few years as a cupbearer for the king, the king's right-hand man, the second most trusted official in all of the Persian Empire next to the queen herself. His job was to taste everything before it got to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. If it was poisoned, long live the king, but give us a new cupbearer because he's dead. And then he hears from his brother what's going on back in Jerusalem, a place he'd never visit. And for whatever reason, when he hears it, his heart breaks. You, we're calling that a dismal, well, we aren't this, we're following this book by Chip Ingram. Uh, we're encouraging this book called Holy Ambition. Would really encourage you to grab this book. It's for sale out there. Um, Chip calls it a dislocated heart. It's when your body is one place, uh, Nehemiah is perfect, his body is in Susa, but his heart is 800 miles away in Jerusalem. He has no reason in Susa to be weeping because he has it all. He has it all. But he's weeping because his heart is where the brokenness is. I really believe that God has given each one of us as followers of Christ a dislocated heart. We each have what I call a signature burden, signature brokenness. And you look around, I do this all the time amongst colleagues and what have you, and I'm like, why does that not break your heart? This should break your heart. But it breaks my heart. It's my signature brokenness. It's not theirs. And when we come together, we'll see this next week as the church. We'll see this in Nehemiah 3, and I apply my dislocated heart, and you apply your dislocated heart. Together, we make up the body of Christ, right? And when the churches all come together with their dislocated hearts, the body of Christ is on the peninsula doing great things. Yeah, just talk back to me so I know we're alive. Can I get an amen? Okay, good. Awesome. Awesome. So that's where we are. But what did Nehemiah do with this dislocated heart? He prayed. Are you in your Bibles? Are they open? Do I see them open? Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at verse 4. I'll put it on the screen here too. If you want to look at me and then look at the screen, you can do that. That was a joke. Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. It's much more beautiful. Look what it says. For some days. Don't take that as a long period of time. Take that one day at a time. Okay, did you catch that? Don't take that as a long period of time some days. Take that a day at a time over a long period of time. He woke up, another day, nothing's happening. I'm gonna pray. He wakes up, another day, nothing's happening. I'm gonna pray. He wakes up, another day, nothing's happening. I'm gonna pray. For some days I mourned, I fasted, I prayed before the God of heaven. Lord, let your ear be attentive. He, we get to see his prayer. 
to the prayer of this, your servant, to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Then in verse 11, we see, sums it up. Give success, uh, give your servants success when, church? Come on, when? Today. Do you know that urgency? This is what happens with a dislocated heart in the valley of perhaps. Urgency grows. You see the peak of fulfillment. You have no idea the trail from today to there, but you just get more and more passionate. Say, today, God, you've got to move today, God, and your urgency and your passion grows when you're living with a dislocated heart. That was our experience for nine months. I would be in staff meetings right below in the, in the room down here, and uh, JoJo's picture would be in my screensaver, and I'd just get lost in the room and go, where is she? Why isn't she here? My love would be growing, growing, growing. And I was still in the valley of perhaps. I had no guarantee of fulfillment. That's Nehemiah's experience. God didn't answer that prayer today or the next day or the next day. 120 days he prayed. I'm not making that up. If you look in uh, chapter one, verse one, you see the one month Chislev. In chapter two, verse one, he gives us another month. Uh, um, Nissan, thank you, Nissan. Four months, December to April, he's praying. He's in the gestation period. In the valley of perhaps, between the twin peaks of promise and fulfillment. And I just gotta say in the book of Hebrews, some of us, that valley of perhaps, will last our whole lifetime. God calls us to obedience because we see the fulfillment of something that won't happen in our lifetime. But our obedience matters for the next generation. Uh, Nehemiah had no idea this whole thing's being played out on a grand eternal scale that, that some 2,500 years later, halfway across the world, a congregation would gather and read the story of his obedience. He had no idea that 400 years after him, those walls would protect Israel in the Israeli identity, and from that identity would come the Messiah. He had no idea. Those walls don't get built. Israel's lost. The Jewish identity's lost. A Messiah can't come through. It was already starting to become degraded. Jews stopped using the Jewish language. Kids stopped speaking Jewish. The book of Ezra talks about this. Nehemiah had no idea of all that was on the line in these prayers and these obedience in the valley of perhaps. And can I just say something? Can I have your eyes? We have no idea either. We have no idea what's on the line when we're wrestling with, with the valley of perhaps and the step of obedience and the principles we're going to talk about here. But so much is on the line. We too are living our lives on this grand eternal scheme that God is weaving. And this is our time to walk in obedience. This isn't a time to give in to circumstance and what we can or cannot see and give up. This is a time to hold on in faith, to have God meet us every day, to be nurtured by his word, to prioritize this in encouraging each other. Can I get another amen? Amen. amen. Awesome. Okay, so what does he do? Let's look at what everything that every restorer knows in hindsight. In hindsight, here's the first thing. He knew that waiting, or knows now, waiting isn't wasted. Waiting isn't wasted. So let's read this. In the month of Nisan, I'm in chapter 2, verse 1. Um, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, 
I took the wine and gave it to the king. I've not been sad in his presence before. This is so cool, so impressive. We saw he's so burdened, right? He's mourning, he's fasting, he's weeping in his private time with the Lord. When he gets on the job, he's professional. Uh, we're gonna see in a minute, the favor of God rested on the work ethic of Nehemiah. That's worth writing down. The favor of God rested on the work ethic of Nehemiah. He's not sitting before the king mourning, fasting, weeping. That'd be unprofessional. He was being paid to do a job for a foreign king. That wasn't the time to mourn and fast and weep. That was a time to be everything that he was being paid to be, to do his best. So the king, uh, he said, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad and not ill? So something's leaking at this point, four months in. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And there's so much on the line. If the king sees a sour face, he thinks Nehemiah's poisoned, right? So keeping it going on, he's sitting there in the waiting time. He knows what could be, what God said should be, and what isn't. And he's sitting there going, okay, the time is coming. I have waited four months. I wrote you this week about why God has us wait. And if you don't get a weekly email from me, you can fill out one of those cards and put it in the offering. Just uh, write Gmail. I, I had the name before Google got it, long before. Gary Mail was my wife's idea. Um, and we'll get you the weekly email. But I just listed for you three, we three reasons. There's many reasons why God has us wait but waiting isn't wasted. Let me just run through this with you. Here's the first. We live in a fallen world. This is the first reason. We wait. Nothing in life functions as originally intended. This isn't in your notes. This is free of charge. Everything takes longer than it should because we live in a fallen world. Sin has cursed every aspect of humanity. Second reason sometimes we wait is because God's ways are way beyond our knowing. We don't occupy the throne room of heaven. Our individual stories are part of a greater Eden to heaven plan that only God knows about. And our waiting is part of God working things out. If you think about it, I was thinking about this this week, uh, the climate in Israel is similar to the climate here. Building a wall in December or January or February or March, the rainy season, might not be the best thing. Maybe God knew what Nehemiah didn't. Let's wait till April, till it's a little sunnier and warmer, much more conducive climate to building a wall. Or there's other reasons God may have had. And then lastly, God works in the wait. Waiting is as much about who we're becoming as it is what God is doing. Does that make sense? God's working in the wait. Certainly is the case in the areas of my life where I'm waiting, even 18 minutes yesterday, waiting for AT&T, God's working in that saying, why are you so impatient? Why can't you wait 18 minutes? He's building character in us. So I wanna ask, what are you waiting for? Where does God have you right now in the valley of perhaps? It could be you're holding to a promise. You're sitting in a dislocated heart. You can see with your faith's eye the peak of fulfillment, but you have no idea the trail between here and there. And so much is out of your control. The first thing every restorer knows is this. Waiting isn't wasted. When you're sitting with the Lord, 
You're asking him to move. You're praying and you're working. We'll see that in a minute. Here's the second thing, page two. Fears have to be faced. Fears have to be faced. So if you looked at Nehemiah's journal for those four months, if he journaled, uh, you know what would be entered in those four months? Nothing. Because <laughs> it seemed like God was doing nothing. He was praying every day, God, move with favor on the king's heart. Move with favor. He'd show up to work, nothing. Show up to work, nothing. Show up to work, nothing. His burden is growing. Finally, it leaks a little bit through his countenance. And the time comes. What is it? Nehemiah, and look what it says in verse two, the end of verse two, I love this. I was very much afraid. That's the second thing every restorer knows, that fears have to be faced. Because between the twin peaks of promise and fulfillment is a huge valley we talked about, perhaps in that valley you have to cross a threshold of fear. You have to. He was very much afraid. Uh, in this book, <clears throat> excuse me, Holy Ambition, Chip has a great quote in here. He says this, risk, fear, and faith are common denominators of those God finds great delight in and chooses to use. Risk, fear, and faith. God's most frequent command in the Old and New Testament to those who change the world are two simple words. Can you guess what they are? Fear not. Fear not. It's part of the equation. At some point, you're sitting there with your dislocated heart and you realize to get from here to fulfillment is a great divide and it, you ready, scares me to death. That was Nehemiah's experience. But he didn't let fear stop him. He didn't put the limits of his obedience on the line of fear. He identified the fear, called it what it was, and crossed right through it. That's called faith. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Oh my goodness. I love this quote by a great restorer, Nelson Mandela. Look at this quote. It's in your notes too. He said, I learned that courage is not the absence of fear but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers the fear. Or another great restorer, that great prophet Ben Pierce said this, <laughs> courage is fear that said its prayers. It's good, isn't it? It's a moment he'd been waiting for. He's been what ifing for four months and God's opening the door and Nehemiah has no idea the outcome when he comes out with his requests. You see, what I want you to know, and this is going to segue into our next segment, men and women, faith works. Faith works. God opened the door to this king. And faith is work. The two go together. Faith works. I'm segueing into our third point here. And faith is work. So many people of us are lazy in faith. Uh, look at this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. By the grace of God, look at the interplay here between grace and work. I am what I am. Can't we all say that? The only reason I've been here 21 years, grace of God. The only reason I've been married, we just celebrated 27 years, grace of God. Daughter of five, uh, father of five daughters, grace of God, right? <laughs> breath, this next breath, <sighs> the grace of God. 
He's, Jesus is holding it all together. Okay, look what it says. And his grace to me is not without effect. No, look at this. I kind of made it a little bold so you'd see what I'm trying to emphasize here. I worked hard. What? Yeah, I worked. See, faith has a work ethic to it. I worked harder than all. And yet, now he goes back to grace. Yet I don't know the line where work and grace interplay. It wasn't me, it was the grace of God. But I worked, but it was God's grace. But I worked, it was God's grace. Do you see the interplay there? So important. The presence of faith doesn't mean the absence of sweat. It is good. Thank you for talking back. Do it more. It's not because I said it. It's because of the principle that the greats in all the scriptures, Jesus sweat blood. And he had great faith. And he was living in grace. The work ethic and the, the fear that he had to cross, he had to exert faith, exert faith to get over his fear. That's so important, men and women. Because I, I, I just, putting this sermon together, I felt for myself and then for us, we're so stifled in complacency because we have fears that rise up. And I get that. And we just hold back. So that leads right to the third point, really, really important. Whatever restorer knows, what was the first? Do you remember? First point, waiting isn't wasted. You got to take that one by faith. Secondly, fears have to be faced. Third, work has to be planned. Work has to be planned. King said to me, what is it you want? There's the first miracle. That's usually the cupbearer's question for the king. And God's reversed the roles here. The king is asking that of the cupbearer. What do you want? And I love this. And I want to give this to you to take to work tomorrow. I call it a trialogue. You ever heard that term? No. Trialogue. It's when you're talking to somebody and you're talking to God about that somebody. A trialogue. This is what he's doing on the job. This, I love this book. Nehemiah wasn't a paid professional like me. He was the greatest hope for Susa, like you are the greatest hope for this peninsula. He was living it in the most uh, under-resourced mission field of his day, which was the royal palace. I'm asking you live it in the most abandoned mission field in America, the workplace, the neighborhoods. So he says, I prayed to the God of heaven. What do you think was the content of that prayer? God, don't let me blow this. God, give me wisdom. Oh, it's here. Have you been there? Have you been there? You've been praying something for so long, asking God to open a door, and all of a sudden, the door opens, and you're like, oh my gosh. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would always counsel students, college, high school, when you get your test for finals, first thing you do before you even open it, just put it on your desk and pray and ask God to bless it. And then a parent called me and said, hey, my, my, my student got an F. And it's your fault. He said, you told him, don't study, just pray. And I said, no, no, I didn't say don't study. <laughs> and I didn't say just pray. See, he had been praying and planning and working, we're going to see in a minute, for, for four months. It wasn't just God do this. He'd been putting in some sweat equity in the background in his little room in the palace. What's this going to take? So when this moment came, he was prepared. And what I was encouraging students to do, because we have some students here, is you study hard, you ask God to fill your mind, and you work, and then right when that test comes, you say, God, give me wisdom on this test, and then you take the test. Commit it to the Lord. 
What does he do? I answer the king. If it pleases the king, verse 5, and if your servants found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. There's the big request, right? He, what have you been praying for for four months? Favor. Chapter 1, verse 11. Give me favor. And now it's come. I wonder if Nehemiah knew this verse. This is a good verse. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Look what it says. The king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands. He directs it any way he wishes. We're seeing that fulfillment in this passage. That verse has gotten me through so many closed doors. I cannot tell you, including our adoption. But I didn't know that till in hindsight. Four times in our adoption period, the State Department got back to Ann and me and said, this is impossible. This will never happen. And every time that voice came, God's voice came and said, oh, this is going to be even a better testimony. Don't hold to that word. Uh, when we went and got JoJo, I, I went to get her, and, and the first thing I did is go to the embassy to meet Officer Oni, who is handling our case. And when I finally got through to Officer Oni, she came out, and she was crying, and she said, can I hold her? And I gave JoJo to her, and she said, she just said, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. I said, you're a believer? She said, I am. I've always wanted to be a missionary to Africa. And she laughed. She goes, isn't it funny? The U.S. government is allowing me to be a missionary to Africa. I just handle adoptions and get to do this. And I saw this case and I prayed her through every step of the way. And it made sense when, when things broke down, God gave us favor in that. Then, when I get to America, I had this envelope that I couldn't open until I got through customs. And once I open it, uh, they, the State Department and customs takes it, and then it gets all sent back to me. And I'm looking through her dossier, and her case, unbeknownst to me, went all the way up to the Secretary of State for the United States. And the Secretary of State under Obama, Hillary Clinton, signed and approved JoJo's adoption. And I just go, oh my gosh, how'd this work? Maybe they were at an impasse and said, well, we don't want to make this decision. Let's push it up, and let's push it up, and let's push it up. And the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands. He directs it any way he wishes. Here's what I want to give you as an encouragement in this point, then we'll go to the last point. If you feel like you're at an impasse, don't complain to your boss. Tell God on them. Tell God on them. God, you take care of this. You're in the heart change business. Change their heart. Change my heart. Work on this. The only reason I've been married for 27 years, Anne is married to a great sinner. She tells God on me all the time. God, he's impatient. Work on him. When we were done with three kids, I'm like, we're done. We are done. You know what she did? She told God on me. And God changed my heart. And we're done, we're like literally physically done with four kids, uh, surgically done with four kids. I don't want to give TMI. She told God on me again because she believed there's a fifth kid out there. Tell God on him. He changes hearts. That's what he does. But now, look at this, verse 6. Let me just read through this. Then the king and the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. He had favor towards him. So I set a time, a time, literally in the Hebrew, a definite time. 
See, Nehemiah in those four months was thinking big. I got to rebuild a wall. Don't miss this. And he was thinking small. These are the details that are going to entail building a wall. I'm going to have to travel 800 miles. There's enemy territory. I'm going to need some visas. I'm going to need some resources. I can't build a wall with nothing. I'm going to need some wood for gates. I'm going to need some favor. So look what all that comes down here. He didn't just say, oh, what do I need? I don't know. No. He was working a plan that he had created, that God had given him. I said, verse 7, if it pleases the king, I need letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. So they'll provide safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And I need a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, because he has all the wood. I need some beams here and gates. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. See, Nehemiah wasn't just weeping and praying. He was weeping and planning. So important. Part of why the four months happened, I believe, is because a plan needed to be worked out. God had to birth this and reveal this to Nehemiah. And like every plan of obedience, the blessing would be more than he ever imagined, but the cost would be more than he ever would sign up for. And so he's planning in there and he's praying and he's thinking big and he's thinking small. Oh my goodness. What was the tool that God used to unlock the door of Nehemiah's, of the king's heart? It was Nehemiah's work ethic. I cannot overestimate this enough. He had favor in the eyes of this king. He was a great employee. He went beyond what he was asked for. And some of us may think, well, that has nothing to do with my spiritual life. No, it has everything to do with your spiritual life. You spread throughout your workplace the fragrance of the knowledge of him through your work ethic, through your countenance, through the way you treat your employees or your work group or your neighbors. It's amazing. The last thing I want you to know is this, and this is so important, we're just going to touch on it. Opposition will come opposition will come. If you are called to a restoration project from God with your dislocated heart, this is not a Disney movie where everything works out fine. You will face opposition. And we see that in verse 10. We'll just introduce these two and a third knucklehead will join them. And uh, this is the opposition. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed. That's an understatement that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Not everyone's happy, and they're ticked. Opposition will come. We even faced it. I I was blown away with our adoption. We faced it with uh, government officials. We faced it with, uh, is this being recorded? I'll just leave it at that. We faced a lot of opposition. And I'm like, why would you be opposed to adopting someone from the Congo? It's just crazy. But God's bigger than opposition. No weapon formed against you will stand. Greater is he that's in you than the one that's in the world. If God's put that burden on your heart, you live in obedience towards that. You follow that dislocated heart. And we're going to walk through the rest of this book. We're just two chapters deep. We've got 11 more to go. This is going to be amazing. We're going to watch this journey of an ordinary person like you and me, trusting God for extraordinary things. So my question is, as I started, where are you waiting? Does God have you waiting? Your dislocated heart. Don't walk away from that. In our instant culture and instant society, God works best in the wait. Hold on. Hold on. Amen? Amen.
Father, I pray that we've been given nourishment to face our week. I pray we've been given encouragement. As we look back at Nehemiah from a 2,500-year perspective, this seems all easy. And of course, we'd say to Nehemiah, of course, four months, you could wait. This is no problem. It's going to work out. I pray we'd hear the same from you. I pray for my sisters and brothers right now in the valley of perhaps, I'm there, with a dislocated heart. We see the peak of fulfillment. We have no idea how to get there. I pray today you've given us rich encouragement. Jesus, thank you for the assurance. In Romans 8, you're praying for us right now, the right hand of the throne of God. We're not alone. We have your spirit. May he come alive in us. May you speak to us in this weight. And like Nehemiah, may we walk in faith in the weight, stewarding this dislocated heart. Let the passion grow until justice rolls down like a river and your mighty kingdom ways are fulfilled. I pray that in the workplaces, on the peninsula, on the streets, in the systems, in the schools, in the neighborhoods. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And every restorer said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.